And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've known A. Smith for decades. I first met him in the 1980s when he was a young opposition researcher working with Rahm Emanuel on campaigns. He became the preeminent political strategist in California, working with Governor Jerry Brown, with Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, who is currently the Democratic nominee for governor, and with Kamala Harris uh, as a district a candidate for district attorney, attorney general, U.S. Senate, and now as a prospective candidate for president of the United States. But I sat down with Ace not just because of all of that, but because he's also an author now, and he wrote a book called The Pitcher and the Dictator, Satchel Page's Unlikely Season in the Dominican Republic, uh, about the great late pitcher Satchel Page, who played uh, one season in the Dominican Republic in the 1930s under the um, sponsorship of uh, President Trujillo, the dictator of the Dominican Republic. It's really an amazing story. So we had a lot to talk about when we sat down earlier this summer. A. Smith, an old friend, good to see you. Thank you. Um, you, you've become uh, a, uh, a baron of California in the intervening years since we've seen each other of California politics, but we'll, we'll get to all that. But Averill Smith is your given name, uh, and I, I see that you were born just uh, Averill Harriman. You were named for Averill Harriman, right? My brother's named Adlai. For Adlai Stevenson, Stevenson, yeah, former governor, presidential candidate. Averill Harriman was, I believe, defeated for governor uh, just a few days before you were born in 1958. I think Nelson Rockefeller beat him for governor of New York. So was this uh, your parents' way of paying tribute to the fallen leader, or what exactly led to them, them to uh, name you Averill? My parents uh, were staunch Democrats. As a matter of fact, they told the story of the first few times they dated, they were afraid to ask the other one whether they were a Democrat because they knew if they... That was it. That was it. And they realized... That's more common in this day, I think. Exactly. uh, And um, for goodness sakes, they they realized two things. If your last name is Smith, you better have an interesting first name. And they were staunch Democrats. My father got his first job working for Pat Brown. Pat uh, when Brown, he was Gov- governor, of when he was attorney general, before yes. he was elected to, uh, governor in 1958. So yeah. this was more like 1955. Yeah, yeah. We had Jerry Brown, uh, as you know, because you were helpful, instrumental in making that happen on our show, and it was fun to talk to him about his dad and growing up uh, in that household because uh, Pat Brown was a master uh, politician, uh, and so. Uh, but but Averill Harriman was a political hero of theirs. He was. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point in your life, you decided that uh, Averill was a little bit too, what? I didn't decide Too that. uptown for you? No, I, a. Smith I, I sounds like the that. name of a protagonist yeah. of a hard-boiled detective <laughs> story. It's a great name, especially for an opposition researcher, and we'll get to that. But how, I, did, how did Ace happen? It happened very organically. There's, if you can show me a little kid say two or three years old that can say Averill, I'll <laughs> give you a hundred bucks. Uh-huh. And so there's no little kid who could ever say my name. And so I just became Ace from the time I was could walk. And that was it. And that was it. Poor Averill Harriman. <laughs> I, I got my, put the name on the book. <laughs> and so you grew up in this household that was uh, steeped in politics. Both your parents were deeply interested in it, talked about all the time. Yes, it was. It was always a topic conversation. And um, my father, uh, who grew up um, in, both my parents came from uh, outside San Francisco, which is the great San Francisco tradition. No one in San Francisco is from San Francisco. Uh-huh. And um, made their way. And uh, my father uh, worked his way through college and went to Bolt Hall, worked for Pat Brown, and became uh, very quickly involved in, in everything political. Um, and and ultimately became a candidate. He did. He did. Uh, before we get to that, your first campaign was George McGovern volunteering for a campaign? That, that was one of my first campaigns, yes. Yeah. And um, 
we used to walk down the McGovern has headquarters at the base of Market Street. We used to walk down there, uh, do um, stuff envelopes, do things like they used to do in the old days, and then walked a lot of precincts for the man. And uh, I remember probably just one of the few places in America where you had a reasonable chance of getting a good reception back in uh, uh, in the McGovern Nixon race of '72. But I remember being shocked. I was in San Francisco. It was Election Day, and I was. In a, you know, San Francisco being San Francisco, right, 80, 90 percent Democratic precincts, I couldn't drag people out to vote. And and that was an eye-opener that it wasn't just about, uh, you know, having the That's right amazing. Candidate. Why was that? Because people thought he had lost. Uh-huh. It, was a, it was a lost cause. Yeah. They weren't wrong about that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. Did Nixon, he, well, obviously he did because McGovern, I think, only carried one state, right? Is that right? Didn't, he, just, he didn't carry California for sure. He carried Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Did he yeah. carry his own state? Uh, I don't know that he did. I don't know that he did. I, I thought he only carried one. He only carried one state. You uh, you didn't travel far. You went to Berkeley. I did. Uh, and and you didn't. Uh, you studied literature there, not not political science, not anything related to politics. Why? I took some poli sci courses when I was a freshman and. I realized that it didn't, I, at that time, I'm probably being unfair, it didn't have much to do with all the politics I had experienced. So and interesting because, you know, I tell this story all the time. I, I came to Chicago to go to the University of Chicago uh, because Chicago was such an interesting political town. This was 1972. Mm-hmm. They just had this convention, calamitous convention, uh, Mayor Daley and the big, you know, last of the big city bosses was still very much in control, budding black independent political movement right around the University of Chicago. I thought, well, this is going to be really interesting. And at that time, I couldn't find anybody who really wanted to talk about anything that happened after the year 1800. And so uh, one of the reasons I started the Institute of Politics at the university after the 2012 election was I thought maybe we could add a dimension there to the very great scholarship that was going on that was very focused on pragmatic you know, sort of practitioners of politics and create pathways for engagement. But I had the same experience that you did. But I didn't. Um, but I didn't have the sense to switch to political science. <laughs> I, I, I ended up writing for lo- newspapers instead when I should have been studying. And uh, I, uh, and people, I, I minored in life experience. <laughs> people don't realize this is enough about you, but you started. Uh, working as a journalist. You know, yeah. I remember being in here in 1989, digging around on the daily race and coming across the your columns yeah, many, yeah. many times. Yeah. No, I, I grew up in the newsroom at the Chicago Tribune, and I learned about politics by covering it at first, which was a really good background uh, as, I, as I moved on. So you did this, but politics was still a big part of your life. And just around the time, and I guess in your senior year, your dad ran for uh, for uh, district attorney in San Francisco. That's correct. I, I The reason why I got my degree in English Lit was I believed if someplace is going to give me a degree for reading books, that's a pretty darn good deal. Yeah. And so um, that's why... Hard, I, hard way to make a living, though. Well, true, true. Yeah. But, but you actually learn to write, which is what you learn to do as a journalist yeah. and yeah. which is one of the great... Um, sore points I have with millennials, but that's another discussion for another day. But um, when I was a junior, my father ran for district attorney of San Francisco. And that was a, it was a fascinating era. It was an odd era. because a tumultuous era it in was. San Francisco. Explain what was going on at that time. Well, he had, he had decided he was running actually the year earlier and had commitments from Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk. Uh, who my family was very close to, to support his candidacy for DA. Against they, an incumbent. Against an incumbent. Um, they were, of course, assassinated by by uh, Supervisor Dan White in November of 1978, which happened also, ironically, just to frame it, at the same time as People's Temple, almost. So it's this odd period yeah. in San Francisco. And then the DA, who my dad's running against, has the job prosecuting the murderer, the assassin, of the mayor and supervisor Milk. He, of course, bungles it with the famous 
gets beat by the famous Twinkies defense. And there ensues one Which was actually never... Twinkies were never introduced into evidence. That was just... One of the one of the arguments, the defense arguments, was that he had become despondent and was not was eating badly, and he was a little off kilter as a result of that. Um, and some reporter, I guess, deemed it the Twinkies' defense, and that stuck. Um, so be, before we get to the race itself, tell me what it, you you mentioned that. Uh, the mayor, Moscone, and Harvey Milk, who's a legendary figure, you know, is the first gay councilman and a real leader in the American uh, gay rights movement. You were personal friends. Your family was personal friends with them. You were certainly of an age when uh, you'd be well aware and feeling about an event like that. What was it like when that happened? It was... um uh, not only was it tragic, but it was one of those events where people just gathered everywhere at Castro Street, at City Hall, and just the, people were shocked and stunned. No one knew what to make of it. And I think ultimately, um, both those people were, were amazing individuals. Um, Harvey Milk, of course, is the is the person we remember. And... Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, uh, that that movement, uh, which is which since became, um, ironically, something that people never thought it would be, a very mainstream movement mm-hmm. of of being able to recognize people for who they are, um, you know, you know, was was um, maybe thrust further into the national spotlight. Uh, but it's a. I mean, it's just not the thing that you expect to happen, you know, in local communities. I I worked uh, for uh, Tom Vilsack when he ran for governor of Iowa, and Tom came to political prominence in little Mount Pleasant, Iowa, because um, the mayor of that town was assassinated at a city council meeting. Someone came in and was unhappy about sewer rates and uh, and shot him, Uh, and Tom... Uh, was asked, he was a young lawyer in the community, was asked by the family of the deceased mayor to step in, and that's how his political career began. But it's just not what you expect. And, it's, and you know, it's one of the things that has generally differed, uh, you know, uh, differentiated us from other places. Uh, that's not how we resolve political disputes in this country, and one hopes that it remains that way. That that's an uncommon event, but uh, the one thing that happened from it is is Diane Feinstein sprung to prominence, uh, became the mayor. Her handling of the situation in the aftermath of that really became the emblem of her uh, political career and uh, helped propel her in the future. Uh, but what a trauma for the city. Anyway, so your dad runs the incumbent had lost the case uh, or Dan White had gotten he didn't get off completely right he got some probationary treatment or something he he got some weak manslaughter type conviction yeah. but, but the the community was just outraged mm-hmm. no, no one could imagine that that could happen and the the race ensued and it was a in those days in San Francisco which is different from um, the way things work today there were there must have been fifty Democratic clubs. You had to do probably some nights two or three debates at each one. There was almost daily coverage of these races in in the local newspapers. As a matter of fact, one of the like profound transport tran, you know transformations of American politics has been the really the loss of daily coverage or, or even decent yeah. coverage of local and state politics. Yeah. Well, local news, frankly, yes, and that too, and. Um, so it it played you know these races these mayors races and DAs races would play almost like mini presidential races yeah and and um, and did you take time off to work on it I sure did mm-hmm. I took a quarter off in Berkeley and I worked full time and what did you do Oh my goodness I did everything from recruit volunteers to walk precincts to uh, make phone calls to uh, go to staff my dad at debates and then what did you do after I know I, I'm there's a big gap in my knowledge of you uh, until you ended up uh, at the DCCC uh, working with our mutual friend Rahm Emanuel. 
Um, how did you get to that point? Uh, did you decide after your dad's race, this is it, I'm, I'm hooked, I'm, I'm going to make my career, I'm not going to hang out in a, a literature shingle and try and make my living that way, I'm not going to be involved in politics? I did, and I was probably going to do that, whether or not I got a degree in literature. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, as a young person, too, back in those days, I, you know, I'd like to say it was all for idealism. But the, the reality of that life was I could really work really hard like eight months of the year and go goof off the other four. Uh-huh. And so it was kind of it was, a, it was a wonderful lifestyle. And I, what I did between that whole period um, was run campaigns, which is always my great passion. And I ran, you know, was involved, not not as campaign manager at first, but was involved in campaigns from everything from judge to state legislature in and, California, in California, all in California. And then I I eventually went in and worked for um, the president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, who was everyone thought was going to be the next mayor and uh, lost a very bitter race in, in, in 1987. And I came to the conclusion after that race that, and I think one of the great ironies about running campaigns, I don't know if you've had this experience, but you always learn way more when you lose than when you win. Yeah. Just yeah. I consider myself very learned. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I uh, at the end of that election, I decided that, I had to get out of California because I wanted. To, there was a whole world I didn't know about, uh-huh. and uh, and I knew so how California is kind of a, a, a world onto itself. It is, but it was. I wanted to meet all the people who did this mm-hmm. across the United States, and and frankly, there were two or three people in California, but the vast majority, of all the famous right. pollsters, all the famous media people, everyone who was anyone, uh, was really uh, on the East Coast. Yeah, which kind of pissed me off, to be honest with you, and I think it was a. I think, you know, I always sort of pride myself being, uh, uh, as someone who wasn't from there and being rooted in the middle of the country. I always felt that was an advantage because the conversation in the middle of the country uh, is much different than the conversation on the coasts. And, uh, you know, I, I always felt like I had a better grip on things because people weren't talking about what was in Politico and, mm-hmm. you know, the Federal Register uh, in the in at at Manny's, my favorite deli, and places where I learned a lot about what was going, uh, what was going on. So you ended up at the DCCC. So I I end up almost randomly. I decide to go to Washington, and I'd like to say I had a great plan, but someone introduced me to this guy named Rahm Emanuel, and so I walked into his office and I meet this uh, brilliant, uh, wiry little guy. And did he tell you? Uh, did he ask you why you're such an asshole? No, he was quite polite. <laughs> he was quite polite, and I, I, I told them that I, that they didn't know how to do research, and that uh, I did, and so he. And did you? I mean, were you by that time, had you developed research skills that you were applying in campaigns that were really useful? I, you know, honestly, I yes, I did, yes, I had, but not to the level I later did. Yeah. I was making it up as it went along. Yes, but. Um, but was it superior to what was out there at that time? Far superior? Absolutely. And I, I didn't think it was that big a deal. I thought, if you're running a campaign, that's due diligence. I mean, yes. my goodness, why why aren't you reading through everything you get your hands on about your own candidate and your opponents? See, I, I want to make a point here because um, it is as important to do research on your own candidate as the opponent. The worst feeling in campaigns is when something comes up about your own candidate that you didn't know. You talk about being learned. That was one lesson that I learned early, which is never be surprised. It's also true that if you're going to tell a story about who your candidate is, and if you're really going to understand what the, the comparative advantages are that you have, then you have to dig deep and understand what their lives have been about, what they've done, how they think. Uh, you know, I... I, I I mean, research to me is just so essential. It's it's kind of amazing that Lil A. Smith out of California needed to bring that lesson to Washington. But uh, and I know you weren't little at the time. I'm engaging a little hyperbole here. I was pretty young, and I'm not sure I would have trusted me. But um, and so, did you do research? Is that what your role? Well, so Rom Rom told me, typical Rom. He said. 
oh, I got this race. You, you, let's go see if you're worth anything. <laughs> and so I went down to Florida and worked. And I brought back a book to, to him. Uh, a research book. A research book. And I'm pretty sure he looked at it and realized, okay, I can actually cross this race off one of my targeted races. This is will win this race uh-huh. based upon that research. I got very lucky because that doesn't that happens rarely. Uh-huh. And so I proceeded to work races all across the country with him. These are labor-intensive projects. I think people don't recognize. I mean, it's easier today because everything's online and uh, or or many things are online. But uh, I remember in uh, my first race out of uh, the newspaper business was Paul Simon's race for the Senate here. We ran against uh, Chuck Percy, three-term incumbent, and uh, a guy on my staff, Forrest Claypool, who ended up becoming a, a major public figure here in Chicago, uh, was looking at some committee votes that uh, I think in the Ag Committee, it may have been in foreign, foreign relations, but found a technical vote that basically allowed the Carter grain embargo to go forward, which is hugely unpopular in downstate Illinois. It became a big issue uh, in that race. Uh, but you had to be an assiduous student of these things, and it was much harder to find them back in the day when you started. And that was the challenge that's different than today. I, I often think that the problem today is that there's so much information in, in how do you actually whittle it down to something useful. The problem in those days was how do you generate the information? And so, you know, it, it would evolve everything from going to newspaper morgues and, and fibbing about who you were and getting them to copy everything in it for you to um, you know, scouring every local library property indexes. And People, it wasn't an accepted practice in those days. Uh, I remember we had one race where some local community was so outraged that someone was, my goodness, researching um, one of their local folks that they actually followed one of my people around the city and put a map on the front page of all the places they ate, they ate and went and so on and so forth. Yeah. You know, uh, we should talk about that because the role of opposition research has become much more uh, a topic of discussion in part as a result of the last campaign and the Fusion GPS yes, so-called dossier. Um, what was your reaction to that? Because, you know, um, this, uh, this was depicted as uh, sort of underhanded work. Uh, and, um, you know, it struck me as kind of a more elaborate uh, layer of opposition research it is you're absolutely right and it it i think it's one of those things that became more controversial uh, just as a result of the people involved and the countries involved and circumstances well i think there was a campaign to make it more controversial but also the the salacious nature of yes. one of the things that were in this lengthy series of memos became emblematic of the entire thing and that i think people do that's where people get uncomfortable when you sort of when it gets into people's private lives so you and ram went into business together we did and uh, i presume you did the work and he did the promotion (laughs) ram has a brilliant political mind and he could ram was not in the newspaper archives reading through thousands of clips but um he he knew how, he knew, knew what to do with it when you came. And up he with also him. he would uh, he was not the sort of person who would uh, get the back of the envelope. He would read through everything and have a thorough understanding of it. And he knew how to apply it. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, I think one of the biggest problems with with research. I so I I didn't I actually only did research honestly as a as a means to do stuff in the rest of the country and meet all the other people. I really never wanted to do that. As a matter of fact, I did it probably about a decade longer than I ever wanted to just because I have a small family and it was uh, a young family. It was a, a way to not be, you know, off doing crazy campaign right. stuff. Yeah, because a lot of it you could do at your desk. Of course. And yeah. and so, uh, but what is missed in a lot of the uh, research is not valuable in research per se. Research is only valuable if you have people looking at it who understand the context, what you should what you should 
what messages you can derive from it, yes. how it stitches together, how it fits in the fabric of the state. Yeah. How you, you know, in, in short, how, like how is it useful in that in one technical vote in committee that exactly. became a big issue in the campaign? Yeah. Yeah. And someone without the right knowledge. Well, Rom certainly has that. He does. There's no question about that. Um, and through him, I, I, I imagine, is how you became associated with the Clintons. You, you were called in to do candidate research and, I presume, opposition research in 92 in the Clinton campaign for president. Yes. And what was... what? Uh, and I know you, you remain close uh, with them, and we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes, but what, uh, what was doing a, a candidate research on Bill Clinton like? in 91 and 92 and did you um when you were through with it did you say this guy is never going to be president of the united states no not at all i the thing about and you know this when you meet bill clinton you just know he's going to be president i mean i did in 91 i had that same sense but um, and so there was nothing you were gonna and and the arkansas newspapers and they had reported i mean a lot of this stuff it it looks like Brilliant national reporting. A lot of that, a lot of that material had been reported about his personal relationships and so on. They've been touched on, but but like a lot of the the uh, um, the other the other issues and and um, what about the Vietnam? Issue? Oh, that was fully. But the thing about the Vietnam issue was did you, that, you did you know about that letter? But not fully. So we should no explain one, to to folks who are listening that uh, uh, one of the major issues that. Bill Clinton overcame in that race was a letter that he wrote to his draft draft board uh, about why he needed not to go. No one knew about that letter. That letter was a the the man of the draft board or one of them had the same probably uh, feeling that you or I had, and they looked at this young man and they said he's and he tucked it away all those uh-huh. years. So how did it surface? He, he, I'm sure I, I don't know exactly how it surfaced, but the only way it existed was this someone had kept it. So did you have a big knot in the pit of your stomach when this letter? Of emerged? course, yeah, of course, because yeah, you that, feel responsible. Yeah, I um, in the 2008 race uh, when the um, Reverend Wright sermons or the compendium mm-hmm. of his most inflammatory statements uh, emerged. Um, I had six months earlier asked our folks to gather up these sermons and look at them, and uh, for whatever reason, it never happened. And this thing, and it w- it made me sick that yes. I didn't know, because at least you could think about how you were going to handle it when it inevitably uh, would come up. Um, I had no idea. I because the the way you handled it eventually was um, seemed as if you so hats off. You uh, well, you know that's a lot about Barack Obama. Uh, okay. he, he basically seized control of that and said, "I'm going to make this speech. People either accept it or they won't, and if they don't, at least I'll have said what needs." I think needs to be said, and that's worth something. And that's, of course, you have to have that to survive a presidential race. Mm-hmm. You have to have that kind of steel, and you know, um, you can't be fearful. And uh, so that was important. You got out of opposition research and started managing campaigns um, in the early 2000s. And my my read on this, but I may be wrong about it, is that. You lost a bunch of them or a few of them uh, before you started winning on a regular basis some very big races. Is that a fair summation? That's a completely fair summation. Yeah, oh, it took a lot of a lot of trips and falls and painful lessons. And I I really emerged uh, believing when, when you're young in this business, you maybe say like a gymnast or an athlete, where you you are transfixed by the kind of like the method or the, and the tactics of it all and how clever and wonderful it is. And a lot of times you miss the big picture. And uh, one of the things that, one of the odd things about doing campaigns in California that forces you to not be able to do that is 
California is so huge that that any given time you're in a constant state of you know, essentially triage where mm-hmm. right, campaigns in most of America, you're in a situation where you look at your budget and you can do just about anything you want. You, you can fill all the different cups. Yeah. And you, California's very California expensive. is very expensive. So let's say you have a $5 million budget in the state of California. Well, a week of statewide TV is $5 million. So you're going to do a field program, direct mail, and you know all the other stuff that people expect from campaigns. No, you're going to actually have to make some really hard decisions. It's almost like a civil war uh, hospital. You're going to have to leave a lot of things out there to die. Yeah. So part of the art is making the judgment as to where those uh, limited dollars are going to go. And to have a, and more than anything, to have a message that can cut through with relatively small amount of money in an incredibly effective way in the right part of the state. If you If you don't have a sharp message that's going to do your job, Forget it. I don't care how much money you have. And you uh, hooked up in 2006 with Jerry Brown. Kind of ironic, uh, given the fact that your father had uh, such a close relationship with his dad. And Jerry uh, was sort of, you know, he had run for president uh, several times uh, and uh, had resurrected himself as mayor of Oakland and was running for attorney general uh, and uh, and and didn't have great resources to run. Had a great name. Um, tell me what. Tell me about your relationship with him and what attracted you to that. And uh, tell me what what makes him such a unique political figure. Sure, I I had just gotten off running. I had done Antonio Villaraigosa's race for mayor, and then I I in in Los in, Angeles in two thousand five, and I I went into I met. And Jerry comes as a package, and and he comes with with Anne, who is the, His the, wife, the yes. most remarkable spouse you will ever meet. Right. She is truly the ballast in that ship. Brilliant woman, and I uh, met with both of them, and and we decided, you know, we'd come in and help them run the campaign. And so he had this crazy little place in Oakland that was that was like yes just below where he lived. Almost it was almost like being in the store. It's like a salon, exactly, and um. And I would go in there, and listen, this is in the category of, like, I, I can't believe people pay me to do what I do. So I get to go in there every day and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, do yeah, do the politics, but just uh, really, honestly, just uh, sitting there with him and, and Anne and figuring this all out is so much fun that it's almost I can't believe people pay me. Yeah, and he didn't—he uh, ran a, a very untraditional campaign— uh, in many ways. Well, the hard thing, the hardest thing about that campaign was this. I believe that he could not be defeated in the primary, California primary. And so I, I, uh, biggest job was, and this is one of the hardest things to do in politics, is <laughs> not to spend someone's money when, yeah. they're, when they're like, they're well, like a, not to impugn people. I was in the business, but especially for a consultant. Yeah, and so it was like it because as you know, also it's politicians, unnatural act. politicians are a little bit they're a little bit like adolescents with you know money burns a hole in their pocket. Yes, and especially around elections. And so the the trick of that campaign was actually to let a a fairly well funded Democratic opponent essentially have the field for a large part, knowing that he couldn't beat Jerry, and then actually having having our money in place for the fall campaign against a Republican who I knew we could beat. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, that was the hardest part about that campaign. And and then uh, four years later, he ran for governor, having been governor decades earlier. Yes. I mean, no one. I think he's he he. If he wasn't the youngest, he was close to the youngest governor of America when he was elected in 1974. True. And he so he had the experience of being the youngest governor in America and the oldest governor in America. That that is a phenomenal political story about perseverance and durability as a franchise. It is. But uh, tell me about him as a politician as compared to anybody else that you've ever worked for. He he comes to the he comes with a unique set of of history and ability and part of what what is so unique about him is because he's a brown because he's he has this famous name. He's actually to some degree or another uh, impervious to um, 
things that would hurt other politicians, and he's well aware of that. Yeah. But he's also uh, intellectually one of those interesting um, and— He's an iconoclast. There's no doubt about exactly. it. Exactly. So he's always looking to push the margins on whatever it is, and he's always looking for the minority opinion, and he's always looking to, to have a debate— and he can I have to tell you, Ace, he came to the University of Chicago in the Institute of Politics of, uh, in, I think, 2014. And uh, he just, the kids were just uh, transfixed by him because he was suspicious, like them, he was suspicious of institutions. He was uh, not terribly into parties. He was, you know, into... At uh, the point where one kid raises his hand and said, why don't you run for president? And I think the kid who raised his hand was a Republican. And uh, and the governor said, because I'm too damn old. Uh, <laughs> and you could tell he was, he was uh, very much uh, unhappy about that fact. I often think about what a matchup between Donald Trump and Jerry Brown would have been like because I suspect that he would have, he would have bewildered Trump in ways that few other politicians would have because he was such a iconoclast and he was willing to reach cha- challenge orthodoxies and so on. So that leads me to my next uh, area of exploration, which was Hillary Clinton. You, um, you were very, as I mentioned earlier, you developed a close relationship uh, with them in 2008. Uh, you ran the state of Texas uh, for them. I remember that well because we tried very hard to win on the Obama side, the state of Texas. You frustrated us, probably elongated the race by several months, pissed me off mightily. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, but you, you were very close. And you wrote a memo, and I know you haven't talked about it much, in uh, 2014 to her because you were one of the people who might have run that campaign. And I just want to read uh, uh, a little bit of this. Uh, today, we are uh, you are a fully known quantity and second-time candidate for President of the United States. As such, you'll be expected to have a clear and deep rationale for your candidacy from the first day of the campaign. And, and, and you said it boiled down to one line. It's about a plan for the middle class. The memo said public opinion research Gallup and Pew that points to the middle class angst in the shadow of apparent economic recovery as a looming giant. The memo talked about a 40 and 50 year old, a 40 and 50 year old people whose wages are flat and worried that quote, if I lose that job, I'm looking at the prospect of working for even lower wages and losing many of my benefits. It talks about younger voters who feel about uh, what younger voters who fret about college debt and inability to find jobs that match their degrees. Quote, it's looking like the issues of the upcoming election will revolve around restoring America's economy in a way that helps working people. Something like, isn't it time for America's economy to start working for working people? That's incisive, brilliant analysis. What happened? Thank you. Well, I, I wasn't hired, clearly. <laughs> and well, That's the first thing. Okay, there happened. you have it. But uh, uh, that's something that still... Uh, drives me crazy to this day because I, I don't know if you share this view, but I know there's there's a lot of people in, that I talk to all day long who believe that Trump has turned America into something that it isn't. Uh, I believe that there's about 30% of the folks uh, or so, and there always have been. You can go back to right. Father Coughlin, you know, all the... Right. To, the Sarah Palin constituency exactly. in 2008. And, yeah. and the tragedy is that the Democratic Party has allowed him to graft on in that last election and, and all too often about another 15 to 20 percent of folks who are really where where they they don't right. they think the guy's a clown they right. think he's but guess what he was actually talking about their economic future yeah you know that. i mean I, I i have a place in rural michigan and many of my neighbors had trump signs in their lawns and um you know i know them I, they're not toothless ignorant racists uh they and, but they do feel like they've been sort of left out. Yeah. And he and he was talking to him and honestly the Clinton campaign in my view sent a message that they really weren't part of their coalition so it made his job uh easier. Um so um And one of the things I always admired about the Obama campaigns was that yes you knew it was it was important to do well say in Broward and Dade County, but you also had 
roots everywhere else. And so I, I'll never forget one of my experiences in 2008. I was working in North Carolina. I'm driving along the southern border of North Carolina. It, it's really where the Klan was, and it's a very conservative part. And going through all these small towns, and, you know, I'm looking around. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of Republicans. Up, I'm seeing Obama signs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, you know, misunderstood. The fact is that Obama, he showed up and he went places and the campaign went places. There's a reason why he carried Indiana, for example, yep. the first time in 1964 uh, in 2008. And, uh, you know, there, it's been brooded about a lot the 200 counties that Obama won that Hillary Clinton lost. And most of them are uh, small town or rural or exurban. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it is important to show up. It's important not to write off pieces. And I think there's a big de debate going on right now about whether the thing to do is maximize the base of the party. I think that's a bad strategy, strategy, not just for winning elections, but it's a bad strategy for governing the country. Now, you have a client, uh, Senator Harris from uh, California, who's widely mentioned as a potential uh, presidential candidate. Uh, tell me what kind of candidate she would be. She would be both a brilliant candidate and she'd be a, uh, an amazing president if she ever got elected. Uh, obviously, she's the one who has to make the decision as to whether she runs. And well, if you keep telling her that, she may make the. <laughs> she may she may just go. But this is a this is a person with a. Uh, not only does she have you've seen her speak. Yes. Not only does she have a, uh, you know, wonderful ability to connect and communicate with folks. Uh, the, you know that is something you you can never, especially in a presidential campaign, uh, is invaluable. But she also has a depth of knowledge and experience actually doing things. The other, I mean, here's a person who ran the largest law enforcement agency outside of she's the Attorney National General of Attorney General of California. You worked on that race. Exactly. And, and she's done real jobs and, uh, and, and has done, you, you know, as you, you also may remember, that we had a little friction with the Obama administration over the uh, mortgage settlement. Mm -hmm. and, and she really, she delivered uh, and, and then came back to California and... Uh, put in place a thing called the Homeowners Bill of Rights, which was for the first time said you can't sell uh, these distressed mortgages to people uh, w without telling them what you're selling. How likely do you think it is that she will run? That is only known to her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when do you think she has to make a decision? I, I think everyone, not just her, is going to need to make a decision pretty quickly after the midterms. I would think so, too. I think this is going to be the the, the, the earliest, earliest campaign. I think we'll, we'll, you know, by the by the early spring at the latest, you'll be seeing debates, and I think probably in the first quarter of 2019. I think the, the sense of uh, urgency among Democrats and the sense of possibility among potential candidates is... Uh, is such that you're going to see that. And I have to say, this is the most unfathomable uh, primary season or nominating process that I think... Uh, now, I think you planted a little seed there that should be encouraging to her using your great influence with the, in the politics in the state of California. But your race is going to... Your presidential race is going to begin a little earlier this year, isn't it? It is. It is. That's a fun thing. And what's great about, so California is now the first Tuesday in March. Right. Where it, where it had been late in the season. Yeah, it had traditionally been first Tuesday in June. There had been a couple times when we'd moved it up, like in 2008, but mm -hmm. it, it snapped back. The, the other thing to keep in mind is that we have as you well know, we have 29 early day early voting. Yes. So people. So the day Iowa votes, California will begin voting, uh, and that should be an enormous uh, advantage to a to a candidate who is from California, which will cast what will will have about what 12 percent of the delegates or something. Something like that. Uh, now there could be more than one candidate from California, there right? Could. You've got the mayor of Los Angeles, Garcetti. Um, that could complicate your... Sure. 
But the, the I don't want to the, say scheme. But that the, the thing the thing that I just think is so wonderful as a as a California exceptionalist is I've just sat by and watched for way too long all the East Coast folks who always have this great advantage in New Hampshire because they're well known. And yes. guess what? We're actually going to have even the playing field. Yeah. Now the number of delegates would make the dif- a big difference in that regard. Um, the there people who win in New Hampshire. As you remember, like Senator Songus won in New Hampshire against Bill Clinton in 2000. I'm sorry, 1992, and but Clinton was deemed the winner by finishing second. So there is kind of a discount for hometown winners. I'm just true. Just want you to part, true. part but, but that away. This is a pretty big hometown. It is a big hometown. <laughs> it's the biggest hometown there is. So I, I have a couple of things I need to talk to you about before you go. I could talk politics with you. Uh, forever, but uh, in a di- you know, A. Smith would have been a great name for a baseball player. I love, like you know, when I was growing up, the Mets had guys. Choo Choo Coleman was a catcher for the Mets, and Pumpsy Green was an outfielder. And I love baseball names. A. Smith would have been a great name, and and you wanted to be a baseball player, but uh, decided that. That well, wasn't. I, I learned that I couldn't hit anything above sixty miles an hour. So, yeah, no good. No. But you've now written. <clears throat> excuse me, you've now written this really, really interesting book. I so enjoyed it called "The Pitcher and the Dictator: Satchel Paige's Unlikely Season in the Dominican Republic." Now, for the uninitiated, talk about Satchel Leroy Satchel Paige, yeah. uh, who I remember pitching for the Kansas City A's in 1966 because Charlie Finley, was it 66? Yes. Charlie Finley wanted him to be able to pitch. First of all, it filled the park. Yep. But thought it'd be cool to have Satchel Paige pitch in another decade. Um, But talk about who Satchel Paige was. Satchel Paige is a, I think, one of the really remarkable figures in in American sports, and I, I personally believe he should be, his name should be mentioned in the same breath as Muhammad Ali or Babe Ruth, but it's not. And and the reason why is he wasn't able to play in Major League Baseball until he was 42 years old, and he played before the days of TV. But we hear all too often the stories of athletes who've overcome, you know, an injury or different things. And But when you take into account what Satchel overcame, it's it's truly remarkable. Here's a man born in 1906 in abject poverty in Mobile, Alabama, where not only is this city segregated, but you're you're uh, you probably have a chance of getting lynched. Um, the he's arrested when he's 12 years old and incarcerated for the rest of his adolescence for stealing a brass ring at a variety store, um, and he determined when he was uh, really put away at this, this camp in, in what amounted to an apartheid state, that he was going to become a great pitcher. And he came back and, and he honed that skill. He came back and he was an original. He was, so people think of him as just a, a kind of a character, but, but he was, had a brilliant mind, this man. And so he, uh, one of the funnest things about this book was finding a book that was written sometime in the 40s by a journalist who wrote little chapters on different people and show business and other places. And he wrote a chapter on Satchel, which is the place where Satchel, in the only time I know of, really talked about his craft as a pitcher and and how he perfected it. And so it was fascinating. What he had figured out was this. So Satchel would, to not wear his arm, he pitched in three different pitching motions during a a game just so he wouldn't – it also threw off the batters. He'd do a thing called walking the rubber where he'd throw off different angles, you know. He he also he was a musician. He was a wonderful musician. And he understood loved to sing. He loved to sing, but he understood the 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 power of timing and throwing off someone's timing. Yeah. And so he had a zillion motions. So you never knew when the ball was going to get really couldn't time him. Yeah, and beyond that, he he had uncanny control. He did. He tried out for the Cleveland Indians, and he uh, had them put a gum wrapper over the over home he plate, and he threw the ball over the gum wrapper yep. six. Six times in a row, and they said, yeah, let's go. But uh, what, what's really searing about this book is your depiction of what it was like for the, the, uh, uh, for the Negro League players uh, 
in that in that time for the uh, you know they were i mean the the conditions in which they played how they were compensated uh was was really appalling and reflected uh the larger social scene in that but he uh, then someone came along and offered him a big stack of money to go to the Dominican Republic just very briefly talk about that sure. Well, it, it's 1937, and he's he's walking down the streets of New Orleans, and this tiny little man in a white suit and white hat approaches him and says, my name is Dr. Jose Enrique Ibar. He says, I work for the president of the Dominican Republic, and the president would like to retain your services. And so Satchel looks at him, and he recalls, the first thing I, I thought about was, this must be one heck of a sick ball club if they got a doctor in charge. <laughs> but he didn't say that. He said, show me the money. So the next day, the little doctor shows up with a bank book, Satchel Page names above the ledger line and $30,000 underneath it. And so Satchel and his fellow catcher, Cy Perkins, getting a plane and, and a seaplane and land well, in, in the, the Dominican Republic. Yeah. And, and he actually helps Ibar and, and Trujillo's people bring, recruiting bring a ton of other... Until they finally got, got a the team greatest win. players... Uh, in the world, uh, or many of the great, because so many great talents, Josh Gibson and others uh, from the Negro Leagues who came down and played there. We should point out, because the title is The Pitcher and the Dictator, the president of, uh, of the Dominican at the time, Trujillo, was, it, was a, basically, a, it was a military junta yes. down there. And, and the thing I enjoyed the anecdote in the book that you know, for and the irony of this was that they that they went down to the Dominican and for the first time these players didn't face these kinds of discriminations that they saw here and deprivations and so on, but they so enjoyed them that it was impacting their play <laughs> during the during the day. Their their evenings were so full. And so he assigned the head of his death squads he did. to keep an eye on the players and make sure that they didn't enjoy the Dominican too much so that it wouldn't impair uh, their play. I have to say, I, it's a great story. Thank you. And um, uh, w- worth reading. Um, Trujillo, we remember, as, uh, was ultimately assassinated in, 19, in, in 1961, uh, but uh, was, a, was a big figure in this hemisphere during that uh, during that period, and uh, so it's an interesting look at from m- many different angles. And if you're a baseball geek like I am, it's it's fun to to uh, to geek out on Satchel's delivery and all of the stuff that you depict so well. I don't want to leave without talking about your daughter Lily. We share something in that we've both had children who have dealt with um, really, really uh, severe illness uh, as children and and uh, and um, my daughter Lauren thank God is still with us Lily is not um, talk about her and tell tell me about her life and the things she overcame and 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 not just the things she overcame but the things that she stood for sure um, Lily um, Lily was born with a, a syndrome called apert which was which is a um, cranial facial condition and it required multiple surgeries and um, a, a lot of struggle and the thing that was always remarkable about Lily was that she really uh, went through all that with a uh, honestly a courage that is is almost hard to fathom and an outlook on life and uh, love people tremendously. Well, let me ask you about this. Um, the, the, there were deformities associated with uh, with this uh, syndrome. Yes, it was bo- both both um, skull and, and finger deformities, mm-hmm. and she went through multiple uh, really harrowing surgeries. And and kids are, you know, I mean. It's just the definition, by definition, kids don't know how to deal with that. So kids can be cruel. Well, what happened with Lily was she, um, she elementary school was great. The, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it, it's funny, kids are very accepting. And then she hit middle school. Yeah, and that's, where, started, that's where it gets tough. Exactly. And she started really often calling her mom and saying, uh, you know, I'm in the bathroom. Um, 
so on and so forth. Um, so, but we actually ended up taking her out of middle school, much uh, we didn't want to, and having her homeschooled, and because she was so uh, isolated, and uh, that that actually led to some some wonderful adventures. When I was in two thousand eight, when I was running, uh, I know she helped you beat us in Texas. Yeah, she she. I, I was able to talk her, her actually her home school teacher had the brilliant idea that that uh, you know it would be more educational for her to go on the campaign trail than to study books and so she went off with me to Texas she went off with me to North Carolina and she would go out and do all the things that the volunteers would do and uh, uh, what a great experience and then she just um, passed away very unexpectedly um, as a consequence of of her illness well she was also uh she was also an epileptic mm-hmm. as a result and, and she that no one uh the doctors believe that she had a you know, essentially a, uh, see, uh, a grandma a, well, like it was a even, status yeah but something even bigger you know they just yeah no i mean I, this is what my daughter has yeah. struggled with and you know we've lost many friends and the children of many friends uh as a result of seizures that uh yeah. came in the night and so she had she had what I I, I think they call I, I forget the medical term but basically it's a seizure that's so massive it kills you mm-hmm. and and um, and what happened was she um, we we did a, a big service for her at our local synagogue and we took a number of her writings uh, and and put them in the pamphlet and she talked about uh, her middle school experience and as a result, um, a lot of the kids who went to high school with her uh, approached uh, Laura uh, and said, we didn't, we should have known this, we didn't know this. Uh, what can we do? And uh, Laura thought about it. And about six months later, she, um, she called up these, these kids and she said, I, I have an idea. Why don't you come with me and we'll do some assemblies at local schools and uh, and talk about social isolation. And that was really the the germ and the beginning of of what what became an organization which which Laura now runs called Beyond Differences. Yeah. And we and it's really it's I I I I'm so hope it's an idea whose time has come. We do um, you know, our basic mission is to uh, promote inclusion. In, in middle schools and and use the and have the high school kids be the leaders who come in and we have three national days one of them is uh, uh, called know your classmates which was modeled on uh, President Obama's know your neighbors mm-hmm. uh, thing and we, we decided to do that in the uh, fall of 2016 when, when there was all this hatred against uh, Muslim kids uh, we do that in the fall as our back-to-school program. Then we do a, a program called No One Eats Alone. And then we do an online program about standing up for other kids. And um, uh, our curriculum and, and programs are now in uh, something like a third of the public schools in America. That's wonderful, yeah. And how do people help support uh, Beyond Differences? You just go to beyonddifferences.org. Okay. There yeah. we are. So... Um, I read your eulogy to Lily. I, I just want to share a little of it because um, Beyond Differences is her legacy, and uh, she lives on in your heart, but also in the work that you're doing. Uh, you, and you said, I know that it's common at a time like this to seek a great truth. I have no such thing for all of you. I can only offer three small suggestions. If you are sad, think of her smile. If you are struggling, think of her determination. If you walk through the world fighting for human rights and equality, glance down at your side and she will be there. And that is such a wonderful, wonderful legacy. So thank you for turning your, your loss and, and uh, remembering her life in a way that will make other, others uh, live better lives. Thank you. And thanks for being here, Ace. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. 
For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.